Craig Middleton. Welcome to the Hope Initiative. Hey, thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Lovely. So you've got me here today. We're out in your office space in Mitcham. Yep. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, welcome. Yeah. Now, I just briefly sort of told you a bit about the podcast and what I hope to achieve with it. Mm-hmm. Now, the first question I generally ask people to orient the listeners, but is for you to tell me a bit about your life, whatever's important to you, but I'm going to try and change it a little bit this week and make it a bit more sort of directed. Now, sorry to put you on the spot as the first person to do this, but cool. <laughs> I was wondering if you could maybe try to do it in under three minutes yeah, or sort no, of no three minutes. So it's, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, obviously if you go over, I'm not going to like have a, have a stopwatch or something here, yeah. but yeah, tell me about your life, your life story, if you will, whatever's important to you in, in three yeah. minutes. Well, I'll give you a summary. Go ahead. As I see it. So I was born yeah. in Hertfordshire, and that's a county just north of London. Yeah. Um, when I was seven, my mother died, so I was largely a single-parent family. My dad was an engineer. He used to build cranes. Um, so, you know, we'd often be playing in the garden with, you know, large ball bearings and spanners and bits and bobs <laughs> like that. Yeah. But I grew up in a sort of a small town. Uh, didn't do very well at school at all but I learned to work at a very early age because I wanted to have my own money Um, so I used to work in the fish and chip shop and I worked in um, hotels uh, washing up Uh, then I learned to cook Uh, so as soon as I left school I went to the kitchen Mm. Um, the first job I had I worked 80 hours a week in a country hotel second week I did 92 hours wow Uh, they paid paid me one pound an hour Um, so I kind of fairly quickly got tired of that and went to London, uh, became a chef there and worked in Mayfair, um, Soho and the city of London, became pretty successful. I was working for celebrities and the royal family and so forth. Um, then in the mid 80s, there was a lot of um, terrorist activity from the IRA and a friend of mine got blown up and various other things occurred, Wow. Um, which was sort of I wouldn't say exciting, but it was certainly eventful. Yeah. But, you know, I was about 25 and I didn't want to bring kids up in that environment. So I came to Melbourne and uh, started to do something different. So I started my own uh, window cleaning business just to be outside. Yeah. Then I started to miss the um, artistic side of life, which I used to have in the kitchen. I started to paint. So now I'm also a painter. And uh, that's starting to become pretty successful at that too. So that, I think, is a pretty rough sketch of of me and my life. Yeah, That'd wow. be just an overview. Yeah. Yeah. Under very, three minutes. Too, very thunder. I think well <laughs> under three minutes. Yeah, not that I was looking at the clock, but wow. I didn't know a lot of that stuff, which is the, the joy, I guess, of interviewing people, sitting down with them, learning about them. Because I've known you for quite a while. Totally. You, you first... When did you meet my parents? You know my parents? I would say 20 years ago. About yeah. About 20 years ago. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And I went to primary school with your your two kids. That's right. Yeah, for a number of years, uh, Jasmine and Josh. That's it. Nice. Okay, so Hertfordshire, right? Hertfordshire, yeah. Just 30 miles north of London. Okay. And that's why I'm an Arsenal supporter. Arsenal being North London. Yep, nice. So, yep, that's the other thing that you may not have known. No, no, I think I, I think I knew that. We might have talked about that a little bit. I'm a Liverpool fan. As oh, a wonderful football team, Rint. Wonderful you. and a wonderful result against Barcelona. Yeah. Unforgettable. And against uh, the other North London rivals oh, in sure. the final, sure. Tottenham. But I think the Barca, <laughs> Barca was even above the Tottenham one. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, great season. Yeah. No, thank you. 
been an enjoyable month for me watching those highlights every day just about <laughs> but there you go so you grew up there talk to me a bit about your life because i also wasn't aware that your mum passed away well you know you um yeah it's seven years old you don't know really know what that means sure so there was a brief you know i was told that mum wasn't coming home yeah. and i didn't really understand that but there was nobody it seemed available to talk to her about that mm. so i never really understood that she she had passed away or what what, what does passing away mean mm. you know so i remember you know as a kid walking around and i'd shut my eyes and look and try and imagine what it would be like to pass away wow. to not be there and i just couldn't get the idea of me not existing in some way yeah so i never really had that answered never at all right and that was one of the questions that really drove me to a spiritual path was trying to get that answered finally yep. by somebody that might know sure um i don't know whether that affected my abilities at school because i was really quite terrible okay. as a student i was a terrible student but i could always work and i always had a paper round or a job at the chip shop or a job washing up or some such thing and that i would say has been my savior the ability to work and the joy i take a great deal of joy and pride in work yeah. Um, so I think that has been, that's really my stable um, go-to uh, point of focus, if you will. Whenever I feel down or upset, I'll either paint or work, and then I feel fine. That's and great. That's what works for me. At what age did you leave school and get into well, I working stayed, in the Well, I stayed shop? up until I was 18. Okay. But even at 18, I used to go, you know, I'd go to school during the day and then go and work in the kitchen at night. Yeah. You know, the, the chefs had put my, you know, I used to cycle out to the countryside to work mm. and then, you know, work until 10.30. Then the chefs had put my bicycle in the back of their car, yeah. take me to another pub where we'd have a couple of pints and then they'd drive me home. Oh, wow. So, you know, I'd be sort of... Maybe that's another factor in my lack of success at school. But, you know, <laughs> as I say, I, it, it just gave me a grounding into the world of work and the, and the world of adults. Mm. And I was always more comfortable around adults than I was around the school situation. There's something in me just seemed to be what I should be doing is producing something. Yeah, right. And there's an aesthetic to cooking, which I really liked as well. Yep. Um, so how'd you get a first job in cooking? Because you were well, obviously I, working in... Like yeah, a I think, if I remember <laughs> rightly, like I started off in the chip shop. That was just a local thing. I had a mate. Yeah. He had a job there. He got me into the chip shop. And then from there, I think we knew the owners of this country pub. My sister had been a barmaid. Yep. Um, and she got me the job there. Because it's a small town and everybody knows each other. Right. So, you know, word of mouth, you know, my sister was there. Hey, can my brother get a job washing up? Obviously... Excuse me. And, and, you know, having a work ethic, they love it. Mm. That's all they want. They just want you to turn up, be punctual, be respectful, polite, work hard. Yep. So, you know, to that degree, it was never an issue, never a problem. Yeah. So that's how I end up there. Yeah. And then having, you know, I was going to join the Navy after okay. that. That was because my dad was in the Navy. Yep. And I could see a structure there. So, you know, if I get into the Navy, I can get a qualification. I can get well paid. I can save money. You know, my life would have been taken care of. And I probably would have loved it. But I did get asthma. Oh, wow. And I think that was partly as a result of the stress of mum passing away. So I got asthma. So then that showed up when I did my um, health history, my, my medical history for the Navy. Right. So I passed everything else and that showed up and they flunked me on that. Oh, really? So you were that far along in the application? I was application? that far along. Yeah. I mean, there's a story in that because I came from the country. I went all the way up to London for the final exam. Yeah. Right in this huge city, right? 
Um, and I had my little pack, my, my ham sandwich and a, a little glass of orange juice, right? <laughs> so then I go into the interview room and I left my bag outside yeah. um, to go into the interview. When I came, no, I got flunked. You can't, you know, you don't qualify. And also when I came out of the interview, there was the bomb squad surrounding my ham sandwich. <laughs> because, you know, it's the 80s. The IRA was targeting places like, you know, the Navy, the Army and all of those things. Yeah, and they thought so, the unmarked bag was a bomb. Bomb. Wow. So I was already sort of halfway in tears, having lost my hope for life. Then I had to elbow my way through the bomb squad to pick up my ham sandwich. Okay. And then, you know, they were, they were not pleased with that because it's just not what you used to do then. You would never leave an unattended bag in London in those days. But I just didn't know. Yeah, right. I was nothing more than a kid, really, Yeah. Uh, from a country town. So then, you know, take my ham sandwich, you know, Tears streaming because my dad wanted me to be in the navy too, and I knew it would be a major fail for him in life as well. So mm. I knew I'd let him down terribly. Was he disappointed? Yeah, he didn't show it, but I knew. Yeah, I knew, and he knew I hadn't gotten in because I didn't come out of bed for a day. Oh wow! So it was a major. It was a really, it was a terrible time. So I just fell back into the kitchen. Yep. And that's when I, I did an eighty-hour week and a ninety-two-hour week. You know, being paid a pound an hour. Wow. So it was a rough period. But again, just work, 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 and I got through it. Yeah. And in those 80 and 92-hour weeks, what were you doing? Were you washing dishes or were you I preparing? was actually sort of doing some dishwashing, some, but I was a chef, you know, supposed to be an apprentice chef. Yeah. But the hours were, were split shifts as well. So I didn't go home for lunch because there wasn't time. So I just slept on the, on the, uh, the sofa of the pub for a whole week on oh. the first week and the same for the second week. Uh, and I think the only reason my dad didn't come and get me and say, what the hell are you doing with my son, was because he knew I had to work my way out of the the funk that I'd gotten into, having flunked the naval thing. Right. He said, you just you just got to get through this, mate, and become a man and work your way through it. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did. Yeah. So how long did you work at that particular restaurant? I think I lasted about six months. Okay. I was probably the roughest, one of the roughest six months of my entire life because it was such a massive gradient going from school to that. Yeah. You know? So you tried to go from school to the Navy, just missed that, out on the yeah, Navy. Yeah, flunked on that, fell into the kitchen full time. Right. Now we're doing 80 hours, 92 hours a week for one pound an hour. <laughs> so, you know, that's $2.50 an hour. Yeah, wow. So, you know... It was, it was really rough. But I did get, you know, I found um, one of my first girlfriends there and she was a, a gorgeous girl, a beautiful, stunning woman, you know. So that was like, oh, she was like an angel to me, you know, right. just when I was at, you know, rock bottom that she suddenly appeared. Yeah. It was this dark-haired girl with beautiful white skin like um, Alice in Wonderland or some such thing. Yeah. So that was one redeeming <laughs> thing about that. Was that, that a episode. co-worker? Co-worker, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. Cool. But uh, I was happy to be to have that behind me, you know. Yeah. And I, I you know, again, I, I feel like I was at a pretty low ebb and I knew I had to do something to get my life on track. So I wrote to, I think it was about one or 200 of the ho- top hotels in London and said, you know, here's me. Um, I'm working as an apprentice. I would really love an opportunity to work in your hotel because I've heard so many great things about it, and obviously you are who you are, you know, with, with Dorchester, Savoy, all of these places I wrote to by hand, yeah, wow. 200. Because what year is this? This would be, I'm thinking about, let's call it 1980. Yep. Could be about that. Because how old are you now? I'm 54. 54, cool. 
So, you know, I, I wrote to them. I thought, okay, we'll see what happens. And, yeah. and I think one, I got one reply yeah. from the Grove, Grosvenor House Hotel, which is on Park Lane, just up from the Dorchester. Okay. And they gave me a three-week trial, and I seized it, you know. I was there on time. I did everything right. I stayed late. I had impeccable manners. And they said, yeah, you, you got a shot. That was it, man. I never looked back. Because I knew there was, there was no, no option B for me. Yeah. You know, option B is just total failure. This is, this is my hope. So I made sure everything was done way over the top. Right. As very best I could. And I ended up, you know, getting gold medals and, you know, all these distinctions and things and succeeding and cooking for people that, you know, otherwise I would have had nothing to do with. I mean, like, you know, the Queen Mother, uh, Lady Diana, um, uh, you know the Rolling Stones, you cook Sean for, Connery. Cook for all mate, of them. Honestly, wow. I mean, yeah, and I've told you where I came from. I came from nowhere and nothing—a complete flunk. Right. So when you arrived, at, what was the, the Grosvenor House Hotel? The Grove. Yeah. So, what made you write? I was Firstly, desperate. Did I was someone out. tell you though? Did your dad tell you write, or did you have a mentor oh, at the pub me. you were in? Or you this just... was all me. Right. My, my sister had done the same thing. Like when my mother died, yeah. my sister is nine years older, and she started to become the mother of the family. My dad sent her away so she so she didn't fall into that trap. Okay. So he drove her to London. He dropped her off and left her. Yeah. And said, you know, work it out, <laughs> which is you know. At sixteen. Uh, I think she was eighteen. Okay. Yeah. No, no, she would have been 16, of course. Right. Yeah, she would have been 16. Nine years older than you, yeah, if you remember. That's right. Yeah. Now, now I think of it, it's amazing. Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. I've never thought about that. So somehow or another, it sounds like to, in, in today's world would be just unthinkable, but that is actually what happened. And that would have been early 70s as well, right? Yeah, early 70s. Yeah. Whatever it may be, yeah. It would have been. Yeah. Somehow or another, and I think, I think necessity level, you know, a pure necessity level, Drove her to become very successful as well. What, and what is she? She's she, a chef she has her own PR company now. Okay. So, I mean, granted, she was already very bright and, and quite tough. Mm. But th- but this is just like, you know, you, you throw the kitten into the pond and the, the, the kitten either sinks or it drowns, you know. And mm. some people may find that unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, Swims or drowns. You know. Right, right, right. Uh, well, she could have gotten home. She could have come home. Yeah. Right. Um, but it worked. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I wouldn't have been fully aware of what had happened there with her because I was young, mm. but I had some no, some sense some sense of it. London is the place to be. Yeah. And I knew I had to get away from this life that I was in. Right. This was just like slow death for me living this, honestly. And I could see it. Same thing was happening to my dad, you know. He was just suffocating in that world. Yeah. And I had to be somewhere else. Right. So I just, I wrote all these places in London. There's yep. no reason for the, why would the Savoy Hotel be interested in me? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. I had no, I had failed almost everything at school. Yeah. You know, I was working in this tiny little kitchen in the, in the countryside that nobody's ever heard of, where the food was very average at best. Right. And the Grosvenor House Hotel said, yes, we'll give you a shot. And when you rocked up there on your first shift. Nervous what? as hell, man. Nervous as hell. Right. For two reasons. One... This is one of the biggest hotels in London, right? Yeah. So therefore, you know, it's a five-star hotel, huge, in Mayfair on, on, on Park Lane, right? <laughs> Think of it. So yeah, anyway, I'm trying and, to, and, and I've not been to London, but I'm trying to imagine that for sure. I'm trying like, to, what's, I mean, there's probably nothing comparable here in Melbourne, not that I've ever really stayed at a five-star hotel, but. Think of it. So it, it'd be 
In, in terms of magnitude, it's like going from your local footy oval to the MCG. Yeah, sure. It's, it's like that, right? Yeah. So the, the hotel was massive, right? So they do a brief orientation. Yeah. And I was were there other people on there on their first yeah, day as well? Yeah, there was three or four of us. Yeah. Right? I was as nervous as hell. Right. Every day I was as nervous as and hell. And what were your skills at that point? Because you, you go on and we'll come to talk about I, it. I only your had, skills, but the only skills I had, yeah. I didn't really learn anything in the kitchen previously. Not, not really. I had, I had manners. I had work ethic. I, necessity level, again, was my main thing. I could be polite, clean, and I had that drive which was visible to people where they could see it, that I needed that job and I wanted that job and what do I have to do to keep this job? That's, that's what they could perceive. They gave me the job, I think, one week in. Wow. I took the other two weeks off. <laughs> they gave me it on the first week. The head chef bypassed everyone yeah. and said, you're in. Yeah. Go away, come back in two weeks. Do you remember what happened to the other people who were there on their first day as well? I think, I think, they, I think they did stay. I think yeah. they did get in. Okay. Um, you know, but it's a case of they, they were younger than I was. They were probably 16, 17. Okay. By that stage, I was, you know, a little bit older than them. Right. So... You knew this was your shot, so to speak. That was it, mate. So I had to make it happen. Right. And talk to me about your time there. Like, what was some of the key things you could Well, there were, there were two... Like, on. the Grosvenor House Hotel, the Grosvenor in those days, I mean, they're up against the Dorchester, the Savoy... Um, you know, some of the, the biggest hotels there are. But one of the things they were famous for was banqueting, and they could do banquets for up to 2,000 people. Wow. And I was working for people that had been in that industry for over 30 years in the banqueting area. Yeah. So in terms of... They, they, had, they had done this, like, day in, day out, 30 years, this job. So I was learning from, from people with that type of experience and working to that, that excellence for that many people. Yeah. So then I went from there to the a la carte kitchen, which was upstairs, and I worked for a guy called Louis Utier, and he had a three Michelin star place in the south of France, and his food was stunning, totally different. You know, you're dealing with you know now you're cooking for two people or a table of four, maybe a table of ten at the very most. Yeah. But a whole different, you know, seven courses of you know exquisite food. Yeah. But, you know, pressure, working for French people, a lot of pressure, long hours, split shifts, yeah. different kettle of fish again. Bet you know some swear words in French. I do know a little bit of rude French. <laughs> so then I went from there to... Yeah, wow. um, we opened a, a restaurant in Soho, um, a guy from the Savoy that I'd met at the Grosvenor mm. um, called Gary Hollyhead. He called me up and said, you want to open a restaurant? So we opened a restaurant up in Soho called Sutherland's and um, the food again was was another level was even better there yeah because uh, it was a smaller operation very intimate uh, there were four people maybe five in the kitchen but we decided we were so good that we didn't need to advertise yep. that's how good we were but what we hadn't realized was we didn't even have signage over the restaurant so not only did people not know about us they couldn't find us so it didn't you know it, it was one of those things where you, 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 you do a painting, but you don't tell anybody about the painting. You just expect people to somehow, through the ether, because you're so good, find your painting and say how wonderful it is. Right. So it failed. Okay. It failed. And how old were you then? Because you're obviously now being headhunted to I'm gonna work say, in restaurants. I'm going to say mid-twenties to save me straining my, my mind too much. Yeah. And from the first hotel that you worked, yeah. how, long until it, how long did it take you to get 
quite good and at a level where you were. Well, the, the interesting thing about chef. that was, you know, by the time you've done a, a proper formalised English apprenticeship under people like I told you about in the banqueting kitchen, then Louis Utier, mm. that's three years. So okay. by the time you've done that, you're pretty proficient. Right. But what I found was after I went to, say, for example, Sutherland's, or just going to Sutherland's, that was you start again. You almost start again. Different style, different uh, moral code, different atmosphere. So right. what you think you know, you have to kind of start again. Right. So that you're doing it that way at the Grosvenor. Now we're here. We do it differently. Yeah. So you have to unlearn, you know, right. unlearn things. Right. And that and, and the Savoy had a different atmosphere again, which was I would just to be polite, I'll say less friendly than the Grosvenor House Hotel. Okay. You know. I wouldn't say, you know, back in those days, not, you know, I saw things happen that were not, uh, yeah, you, you wouldn't want to put it on TV, shall we say. Right. Of no. a physical nature, of a physical, like intimidation, right. of, a, of a mental and physical nature. Anything so that, you'd be willing to share now or? Oh, I, you know, uh, boots were flying and knives were pointed. Wow. You know, um, Between I chefs, just. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this happens through. Pressure, long hours, ego. Mm. Um, I think if one were to take caffeine tablets um, several times every day for weeks on end, that might tend to have a, an effect on one's outlook. Yeah, sure. So that might have been happening. Right. So, you know. You seem like a man who's very gentle in nature, though. I, oh, don't, it, I don't imagine you. Yeah, I mean, there was an incident there where a knife was pointed at very close to my eyeball. <laughs> And words were said, and that was the point there where I thought to myself, "This is not the environment that I want to work in." No, I could see why, how we got there. I understand that. Yeah. You know, I had made a mistake, um, but it's not. I just didn't want to be involved in that. Mm. It's not not important enough for me to lose the sight in one eye. You know, a plate of food. No, quite matter of factly. Jeez. But you know, I, I understand this. Having said that, some people wouldn't understand the need for discipline. So, look, like the Gavroche Hotel, the Gavroche Restaurant is the best restaurant in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Whereabouts is that? That's in. That's right next door to the Grosvenor okay. it's on Park Street in London. Yeah. Three Michelin stars was, I think, the first three Michelin star in England. The two Rue brothers opened that, and they made it. I, mean, I don't know how they did that. It's extraordinary. The discipline there is second to none. Everything has to be immaculate. But to my knowledge, there is no physical intimidation there. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Right, but it's a good but, environment to work in. Yeah, but it's a totally, totally, you could say severe for them to retain that standard every day, mm. year in, year out. Some people wouldn't understand that, but I see the need for that. And that, that's about professional pride, and it's about demonstrating to the world pride and the excellence is attainable, mm. you know, and that changes a person to be able to work in that environment and to be able to succeed. That would make that that can make a, a person, yeah, because you cannot take that pride away. So I, I can see the value in that, but I think having said that, there's also an, a line that can be crossed, mm. and that's a line where it starts to get suppressive in terms of physical violence and mental intimidation, and it doesn't even work. Yep. Do you see? So there, there is a line there, you know, because some people say, oh, you can just, just ease off and let everybody do whatever they want to do, and you won't have good food. Right. You won't have good food. But then on the other hand, you know, you get to the point where people start being kicked or hit or threatened. 
Yeah. I think, again, you probably won't get good food. Do you see what I mean? For sure. There, there, there's, there, there's the right amount of discipline needed. Totally. The, the, the pressure, yeah, it's a fine balance. And obviously that, that restaurant there, what, what was it called again? Oh, yeah. Sutherland's? Yeah. Yeah, Sutherland's. They've got the right balance. Okay. Oh, the Gavroche. You're the Gavroche, about, sorry. Yeah. The Gavroche. Everybody knows the Gavroche. And you probably could, if you wanted to get a job there, you'd be one in 10,000 wow. if you applied. You'd be very lucky. And it would make your whole life and your whole career. Yeah. Because everybody knows it. Yeah. Have best. you ever had much to do with them or you just obviously... Oh, I went, I did my apprenticeship. My friend did his apprenticeship at the Gavroche. Okay. So I don't, I don't think stories. in that, those days we didn't quite realise just how lucky he was yep. to have been given that opportunity. Yeah, sure. I feel like we could talk about your days in the, in the kitchen. Oh, there's a lot of material. I mean, I haven't told you any of the dark stuff. Right. You know, I'm just well, you've had cheerful, a, mate. <laughs> you've had a knife pointed at your eye and you haven't touched at all. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, touch there's, there's plenty of material there. <laughs> but I don't think that that is necessarily... You know, the, you know, the dark stuff is... you. You can talk about that, but it's not necess- it can be entertaining, mm. but it's not necessarily productive. No. You know, so we, we, we could, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that is that, that kind of behaviour that's already been done. Yeah. It's been done, and it's not that interesting if people... You know, I have friends that are dead from alcohol and drug abuse. Mm. You know, we can talk about that, but, you know, that's already... That's everywhere all the time. Sure. So I, the only thing I would like to add to that... Sure is that you, you won't find drugs in the Gavroche. You will not find drugs in their kitchen. Yeah. Whereas other chefs in other places might be on you, certain substances. You speak substances. to Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. You speak to Gordon Ramsay. If you, you look at certain, the histories of certain other top chefs from England, almost all of which came from the Gavroche. I'll give you Marco Pierre White. There's yeah. one. Gordon Ramsay, there's another one. He came from the Gavroche. Heston, there's another one. Yeah. The, the, the Rue brothers, they are the Beatles of the cooking world. Okay. And all of these other stars now that have come out of there, all taught and inspired by the Rue brothers. Right. They're, they're, the, main, they're, they're the main men. Yeah. And you won't find that they weren't drinking, they weren't doing drugs. Why not? Because it wasn't professional. Yeah. See, but times changed. Yeah. You know. Well, I doubt it's probably still, it still wouldn't be in there. It's a way problem. of operating, It's right? a problem. Gordon Ramsay would tell you that now. Yeah. No, but you can Google him and he'll tell you. If you Google Gordon Ramsay cocaine in kitchen, you'll find he's, he's trying to do something about it. Wow. It's a problem. Yeah. But it's not a problem in the Gavroche, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. Where pride, that's why it doesn't happen there. Yeah. Because they have pride and discipline, you know. Nobody's going to blow their opportunity at the Gavroche. So that's great. I might have to eat there one day. You're going to have to book out. If you want to go in, in 2020, book now. Because <laughs> it's very hard to get in. <gasps> Might have to. I'm planning a trip. I'd like to go over yeah, next year. We'll see. Yeah. Unbelievable. Monday to Friday. Forget the weekend. Okay. So maybe we can talk about some of that other stuff in another episode because oh, yeah, I'm absolutely. fascinated with this. And Absolutely. By the way, do you have a time limit on when you need to be out of here today? Well, let's just do an hour. Cool. We've got about another half an hour. Yeah. Nice one. So, where do I go from here? So, I want to know a little bit about who who have you cooked for. So, you mentioned before. Well, look again. Let's go back to those days, eighties. You wouldn't already, you wouldn't always know, right? So, let's take Maggie Thatcher. You'd usually know if somebody like that was coming for dinner. Yeah. When you'd find the Labrador sniffer dogs coming through the kitchen with a seven foot tall policeman behind him, <laughs> you know, heavy security. That would normally be your thing. 
Yeah. So many times that happened. You know, so suddenly, you know, there's, there's a dinner on and sniffer dogs coming through the kitchen. Yeah. So that would be how you would know. And then well, after the fact, you know, you'd usually get, you know, for example, I went to work in the city of London for a, a place called uh, the Worshipful Company of Grocers. That company uh, was one of the founding companies of the city of London. That was founded in 1300, can you believe? Wow. Right. So the people that are connected and affiliated with that are um, aristocrats and so forth and top people in the country. Mm. And they have very um, set traditions. They're connected to the Lord Mayor of London. Um, so they would have guests, whether it be the royal family or the prime minister, people of that nature. Um, a lot of, um, you know, in, in the company itself, you would find people like um, uh, ex um, captains or brigadiers and people like that from the army and that's why they were kind of prime targets for terrorists yeah well so there was a lot of security there I mean yeah you know, on my side of the thing they were lovely people to work for mm. um, I met the queen mother once and again lovely people to meet wonderful yeah wonderful people very gracious good manners you know appreciate great food they would always have time to say hello and how are you and all this type of thing. I used to know um, one of the the Queen's uh, nephews um, called Michael Kenny, who was a, a fantastic, delightful, charming man. Yeah. And you wouldn't think he was he could be your next door neighbour. You just you just wouldn't know any differently. And he would talk to you just as normal as anything. Yeah. Um, so looking back, the fact that sometimes these type of people were caught up in attacks is a terrible shame and a complete injustice. Yeah. Uh, but there's always two sides to the story, mm. and the people that do that are upset, and they often have a reason to be upset. The solution is just not to, not to do that. It just not doesn't to, work. Not to bomb people. It just doesn't work. Yeah. You need to find some method of redress or communicating. Yeah. Um, because that, that's just not, it just doesn't work. No. Um, so, yeah, in terms of cooking for famous people, as I say, sometimes I would know and sometimes I wouldn't know. Yeah. When I cooked for Sean Connery, I knew because there was a waiter um, and he was very fond, shall we say, of taking the food up for Sean Connery. <laughs> he used to love it. He was that, that way inclined and he would always make me, you know, do an extremely good job of cooking for Mr. Connery. Yeah. Um, when you were cooking for him, were, were there any added nerves on not really your preparation? You, no. It becomes when you when you're working at that level, um, you, you're never really cooking for a bozo. You know, any person that can afford to stay at the Grosvenor House Hotel or dine in a place there used to be ninety Park Lane was the a la carte restaurant. You're not going to be eating in there mm. unless you you have serious dollars. Serious spend dollars. Pounds, you know. Yeah. yeah. But you'd be more nervous cooking for another chef. They'd be the hardest critics. Mm. Another chef, then you would be nervous. So say, if the Rue brothers has come in, then you'd be ter- really, really nervous. <laughs> and did you do that often, cook no. for other chefs? No? Not okay. often. Sure. No, not often. I mean, if Marco White had come in, you know, this type of thing, that's what makes you nervous because yeah. they know food right. at a whole different level. The critique on that so much more. Yeah. Yeah. How much this, you might not remember or might not want to answer, but how much were you getting paid then working in these oh, top so restaurants? You're not, you're not getting paid much. You're getting no? paid mainly for the privilege, mm. you know. Like if you're working at the Gavroche, you, you're not, you, you know, you, you'd never do that for the money. Sure. The money comes after. 
right? Do you see? You go and it sets you up for your life. Yeah, so you might do three years if, you, if you're tough enough. And the people who do that are terribly tough, yeah. if that's not obvious. They might do 70, 80 hours a week in five days, Yeah, if you can imagine that. All right. Think of it. That's that, half, that's that's half your, your week, 80 yeah, hours. Right? Yeah. That's on your feet, in the heat, under stress. Everything has to be perfect every minute of that time. Yeah. Right? Wow. So some people can't cope with it and some people can. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking, you mentioned before, you know, a pound an hour. Obviously, you would be earning enough to... More. Really? I might have been getting five pounds an hour at the Grosvenor House. That's after an apprenticeship. Wow. But your money... See, there's a huge gap between, let's say... At the Hyatt, I worked at the Hyatt for a while and I was a, uh, a, a, what they call a tournant. So a tournant has to be able to run any section in the kitchen. Okay. So that's a highly skilled operation. Yeah. So I could, be, I could work as a saucier, which is a sauce cook, yeah. in the fish section or the meat section. I could run uh, the butchery. I could do the fish I could, uh, preparation. I could be in the vegetable area, you name it. Yeah. Larder, which is all the cold food. I think at that time I was probably on five pounds an hour. Wow. Right there. See, it's, it's not a thing that you do for the money. Sure. Right? But it's a bare minimum, bare minimum sort of to live. I'm guessing oh, you go I, home, sleep, get right? up, come back yeah, to work. Yeah, by the time right? you've finished living in London, right? Yeah. Well, like when I did my apprenticeship, I was earning £50 a week, right? Think of it. My rent was £25, <laughs> and the train fare was, I think, 17 So you try living then on, what's that leave? Eight. Eight pounds. So you you got to eat for a week on eight pounds, right? And heaven forbid you need a new pair of shoes. Right? <laughs> so that, that's that's what it was. Wow. So I they used to give me overtime, and I don't think I used to get extra an extra rate, but they used to just pay me for the hours extra. Yeah. Right. Because I was cheap. And I thought, okay, I'll take it because then I can probably afford to buy buy shoes, right? Yeah. If I do a couple of extra, you know, two two very long days. Uh, but you know. There's a point there. If I'd stayed at the Hyatt, for example, and become a sous chef, which is just underneath her head chef, maybe I would have been on, I don't know, really, $10 an hour, £10 an hour, sorry. You know, but it's not big dollars until you get up to head chef. Right. Then you start to, but again, there's there's many easier jobs to do that are far better paid. Right. And yeah, you didn't get into it for the money. Do you know what? You know why people do it? It's pride. And, and there's glamour in it, and there's aesthetic in that. Mm. You know, I look back on the thing, you know, the food that we used to make was beautiful. And the people that we used to work for, and you're doing it on plates that are gold-plated. Yeah. And they would you'd be using silver knives and forks, and the waiters are in tuxedos with white ties. You know, and it was beautiful, wonderful, aesthetic. You know, yeah. you're doing a meal for oh, the Rolling Stones tonight. I was from a little town. And I'm cooking for the Rolling Stones. You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's why you do it. And they, and they, they you know, send a message back. They loved it. Fabulous. Yeah? Not, yeah. not everybody can say that. Sure. Right? So that, You've cooked for the Rolling Stones. Well, everybody, You've cooked for me. In, well, but, <laughs> but so let's go back to the Grosvenor House Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Like you're doing a banquet for 15... Like they used to do the Rock and Pop Awards once a year. Yeah. So anybody that was anyone... In the, in the music industry was there. Yeah. You know? So, you know, like the current people, like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who were big in that day, uh, Prince, um, Status Quo. I mean, you, you could just go on, whoever. Mm. Anybody in the music industry was there. Yeah. From all over the world. And you were cooking for them. Glorious. That was fantastic, man. Now, am I right in saying you met your wife? Yeah, we met at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Okay. 
again, like I was earning 50 pounds a week. She was already qualified as a chef, so she was probably on 75. Back in those days, though, she was from Yorkshire, and back in those days there was a big miners' strike. So Jan, my wife, was sending money back to her parents. So she was broke as well. Wow. There was no reason for her to be attracted to me, I can guarantee you, (laughs) because I was uh, skinny, spotty, broke, and, and I was an apprentice, right? And there, she had plenty of attention, right? There was, yeah. there was nothing. I had nothing to offer her. But I used to just follow her around like a puppy. <laughs> I, at one point, my, this guy that was doing the apprenticeship at the, um, the Gavroche, yeah. his dad was quite wealthy, and he had an apartment on a place called York Street in Mayfair. Now, an apartment there is like having an apartment in... Um, just right near, in the middle of New York. Yeah. It's the most expensive real estate in the world. Wow. He had an apartment there. He offered me a room, right, for free. Now, this is like a 15-minute walk from the hotel in Mayfair. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'm there. I'll take it. Now, when I met Jan, I had that apartment. <laughs> so that's the one thing I had to offer. <laughs> How long were you staying there for? Uh, he, that was just as long as I wanted to, right? Wow. Um, so that's I, a nice, nice bloke. So that's, that, that's how I scored, mate. Eh? Because yeah. I had, the, I had this, this apartment. How you scored the, you scored the wife. You had the yeah. <laughs> how long did it, did it take for her to realise it wasn't yours permanently? Oh, she knew that. Okay. You know, okay. Again, like the miners were on strike; they weren't getting paid. Sure. So all of the, her money was gone. Yeah. So her having a place like that to stay, and me having, because then I could keep my fifty pounds a week because my rent was free. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So suddenly I, I'm rich by comparison. Right. 50 pounds a week in my pocket instead of eight. Yeah. Because I didn't have to have the train because I could walk. Right. No rent. Bang. Right. A little bit of overtime brings me up to 70 pounds a week, maybe even 100 pounds. Yeah. Well. So suddenly I'm, you know, like the equivalent of a sugar daddy here all of a sudden, <laughs> right? So, you know, that's how that worked out. Yeah. And you've roped her along and into the that's present right. day. Brilliant. Yeah. There's obviously Richard, something about you. She said she was going to stay for, I think, two weeks. Yeah. She was living in Hackney. When, I, when we met. I've heard of Hackney. How Hackney, far away? Hackney's now London. trendy. Yeah. But back in those days, you, wouldn't, you, you just wouldn't, wouldn't even drive through it. It was a horrible place. Okay. Just, just dreadful. So we, we took her out of Hackney uh, in this horrible bed sit with a, with a bath that had like one of those little mounted boilers that we and a little rubber shower thing. It was just, oh, just horrible, mate. Depressing. Sounds like a scene out of the young ones. Well, London, <laughs> if you want to, you know, like London and the UK can do depressing. Yeah. They're good at that. So you're going from that to Mayfair. Did she get married the next day? What was the guy? Well, she said, <laughs> she no, she was going to stay for two weeks. She, she said, I'll just stay for a couple of weeks until I find somewhere better to stay. Yeah. Okay, cool. And she's never left. So Brilliant. that's how that that's how that pained out. I don't even remember what your original question was now. That's good. That's a yeah. good thing. I think I've asked you about one serious question and we've just flowed from there, which is something I love. Yeah. So thank you. It's been Pleasure. very entertaining thus far. We've... Probably only got about yeah, 15, 20 more minutes. So, all right. So that's how you met your wife, yep. Jan, who I know very well as well. Yep. Lovely lady. When did you two decide to come out to Melbourne? Because you mentioned in that sort of three-minute so rundown. Things, a few things happened there. We had this little um, – when we'd sort of outstayed our, our welcome in Mayfair, we end up living in a few places. But we bought a house uh, – a flat, rather – in a place called New Cross, which, again, is an – or was then – quite an undesirable place to live yeah. put it that way so there were housing estates there yeah um and there was a you know 
you wouldn't want to wander through those housing estates at night. Sure. It, you just, it wouldn't be safe for you to do so. Then also, just around the corner, was Millwall Soccer Club. Yep. So you got the combination of those two things on your doorstep, and it was not a fun place to be. Right, Millwall Soccer Club, for anyone listening who's not aware, if you Google Green Street Hooligans, the movie, based on them. Um, it's not, that is not very fictional. Right. So that is quite an accurate film. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, honestly. Just anyway. thugs punching up each other, basically. Yeah, but okay, yeah. so that sort of area. Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably changed now. And also, let's, I will say, there were very nice people there too. Of course. But there was an element, this other element was definitely very present. Yeah. Um, so we were living there. Um, suddenly the government, I think, cranked the, you know, having lured young people into buying properties, they suddenly cranked the interest rate up from 8% to over 16%. Wow. And we're thinking, gee, this is not much fun. <laughs> Bombs are going off. Yeah. My friend Ken, um, who I used to work with in the city of London as a chef, he got a job working for Maggie Thatcher in the Tory uh, party club. Yeah. All of these parties, um, political parties, used to have clubs, right? Yeah. Which is it's a London thing to have your own club, gentleman's club. Yeah. So he was working there and the kitchen was downstairs and the reception was above the kitchen. Somebody wandered in, put a briefcase down, left, bomb goes off, right? The IRA did its thing, right? Yeah. So Ken was, you know, on the front page of the newspaper, covered in blood and rubble, staggering down the street after this bomb blast. Right. So that happened. Uh, interest rate, 16.5%, shall we say. Uh, living next to Millwall Soccer Club, etc., etc. A few things were happening. Yeah. I was about 25, I think, by this stage, thinking about kids. And I didn't want to bring kids up in that environment. Sure. So we thought, okay, we could try Canada, America, Australia. Took Melbourne yep. for some reason. I think I had a cousin here. Okay. Uh, came to Melbourne. It was a no-brainer because Melbourne in 1991, when we arrived, was like a country town. Right. And I wanted to be away from danger. Yeah. And you couldn't get further away from danger than Melbourne in 1991. Funny how that flipped then. You were saying earlier you wanted to get out of the country town and into the hub of activity of London, yep. which is definitely one of the biggest cities on the planet. Yeah. And then you bring up a family want to get away from that to come to Melbourne, which yeah. is now becoming one of the biggest cities totally. on the planet. No, Nowhere near comparable to London or New York or things That's like growing. that. But it's growing and it's changing. Right. Okay. So, I mean, you know, and I remember... Off the plane, Jen and I had jet lag. would have been, let's say, 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We went for a walk, right? Couldn't sleep. Yeah. And we're just walking down the street, and I can smell grass and uh, eucalyptus. And I said to Jen, look, behind you, we're safe here. And it was quite weird to be walking that late through back streets and side streets and knowing that you are safe. Yeah. So if you've never, if you've never been there to the east end of London and been mugged or stabbed or, you know, all these other things that have happened to me yeah. and friends of mine or, or looked at bags and wondered if it's a bomb and sometimes, you know, on occasion it has been a bomb, yeah. right? If you haven't gone through that, then walking down the street at one o'clock in the morning and feeling safe is, is nothing. Right. I mean, I'm a six foot one white male who's in the mid-twenties. I walk through the streets of Melbourne, might stagger home late drunk at nights and yeah do certainly feel safe or without too much of a worry but i'm yet to go to london and 
I'll be sure to sit down with my brother who's lived in Leeds the past 18 months. I'm not sure what Leeds is like comparable to the East End He'll of London. he stories but, for you. Right. Well, he, he's worked in a bar and done a lot of night shifts, so walking yeah. home at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning quite a bit. But depends where interesting you go in life. Leeds. Depends yeah. where you go. But there, there are certainly areas of Leeds where you wouldn't want to go. Right. You know, I mean, you know, and England at the moment is in complete disarray. Mm. They are completely disorganised and they need a leader right. who who is, you know, um, loyal. Yeah. Loyal to his family and loyal to his people and loyal to his country. They don't need a buffoon. And that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few buffoons there. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit across the... The uh, the Brexit situation in the London or need, English they need politics a strong rather. Leader who's intelligent and uh, has a direction, knows what to do, is ethical, uh, etc. That, yeah. That's what they they lack. That I agree. Yeah. So you come out here in ninety one. Yep. Did you and Jan get into working in a kitchen? I, did, I worked at a place called Stephanie's first of all because that was supposed to be the best uh, kitchen in the in the country at that stage. So but you went straight totally to the top. Different. <laughs> totally different. Okay. I hated it. They wow. wanted me to do my own washing up. Wow. Um, and it, you know, I didn't like the food. I'm not saying the food was bad. I'm just saying I didn't like it. Right. Um, it wasn't what I thought was. So it was the top in the country at the time. Yep. And they made you wash your own dishes. And that was their style. Right. You know? I mean, there, there's no criticism there because. You know, Stephanie Alexander, you know, is, is a good chef, right? Yeah. What I'm saying is I came from a totally different background um, and she has a totally different style to what I'm used to. And mm. we, we just did not gel. Mm. I think it would be inappropriate and unkind for me to criticise what she did. Yeah. Uh, totally. And, and just I'm, I don't even want to do that. But I would say that we didn't get along and I didn't like it. Right. And how long did you stay cooking for? Because I'm assuming you... I might have lasted a month. Oh wow! So yeah. you one month here, yeah, and what in that kitchen? Oh, in that kitchen. So, so then I went from there to the Windsor Hotel. Yep, and hated that equally. Yeah, I just I just couldn't get along there. Yeah. Um, so by that stage, I think I was kind of just done because I was sort of expecting uh, the Melbourne food culture to be London on a smaller scale. Sure. And it was dead. There was nothing back in those days. Now. Totally different, yeah. you know. MasterChef has changed Melbourne. Uh, you couldn't, wouldn't even recognise Melbourne now. Right. The, the 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 food culture here yeah. is t- is uh, unrecognisable compared to what it was. Because I think what had happened was a politician had decided to remove um, tax breaks for business lunches, and just before I arrived, and it killed it. Oh, really? It killed the industry. Yeah. The people would no longer go out for lunch. Right. Why is that? Because it's not tax deductible anymore. Right. So that was something that hadn't been thought through. Sure. Um, so that nothing was happening. And the food at the Windsor, again, in my opinion, was okay. But it, I just didn't want to do it. It wasn't inspirational for me. I'd seen it before. Yeah. Okay. I didn't like it. So what did you turn to? Because you mentioned you, you started your own window cleaning company. Was that well, very I mean, much you at know, that time? Or? Before, I, before, years and years earlier, I had a mate, my best mate, mate from school, um, he left school, same as me, hadn't, didn't know what to do. He you know, didn't really succeed at school. And I, I, sort of, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll set him up as a window cleaner. Where I got the idea from, I have no idea. I just, I know, that's what I'll do. Yeah. So I sort of set him up as a window, with a little window cleaning round in that small town that we grew up in. Yeah. And then I you know, went off to London 
Right. It didn't last, but that was just my idea of helping him. Yeah. Um, because there were there were no overheads in setting it up. It was a way that he could get instant money, gives him something to do, and he can live. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of brought that idea with me after the kitchen fell over for me. Yeah. I thought, I'll try that here, you know. Yeah. I was still, you know, I think I was 25, 26. So still full of optimism, if you will. Yeah. So um, I think somehow somehow or another I blew the last $10,000 I had on something or another. So I had no money. I was broke. Right. I had no... I'm surprised you had $10,000 from... Me work, too. I don't know how I did next it. Next to nothing for seven um, years. So then I thought, okay, I've got no money. Uh, I was living with my auntie. I borrowed a ladder. I bought a bucket and a squeegee from a hardware store. Yeah. I think it was even pre-Bunnings Day, so I probably went to some local store and carried the ladder from house to house, knocking on doors for eight hours a day until I got work. Wow. And I, I just did that day in, day out, day in, day out. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I would go, you know, 40 hours a week just do- knocking on doors. Wow. Until somebody, you know, nowadays... It might be different. I don't know. It might be harder now because mm. there's more population. Maybe there's more crime. I don't know. But we had our ups and downs. People would laugh at me, send me away, call the police, wow. set the dogs on me. You know, because I'm knocking on their door, right? This random guy. It's here in Melbourne. This is, this is here in Melbourne. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and all sorts. Interesting. All sorts. What well, suburbs you, was this? Where were oh, you? Oh, you know, I'm talking Pran, Surrey Hills, Blackburn, Kew, okay. uh, Montalbert Road. So sort of in the east, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've knocked on every door on Montalbert Road. <laughs> knocked on every door on Sackville Road, which is another big road. Yeah. You know, many of those streets I've just done every single house. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, eventually, say after three days, I get one job. And I would do a spect- such a spectacular job for such a low price that I knew I would be able to keep that one job. Right. So then I'd be okay in six months for that one house. <laughs> and maybe they would tell next door. Yeah. And often they did. Mm. And I would just go on like that, you wow. know. And I, I would t- I took the kitchen work ethic to the window cleaning business, yeah. And the manners that I'd learned from home to the window cleaning business, you know. All of that, all of that service, manners, work ethic into the same business, and that's why it's still here thirty years later. That's why it's the size that it is. Like yeah. we've got thirty-five five-star reviews just at the moment. Yeah. On the business because we, we keep them like you know I always say look at the Gavroche see there's no reason why you can't take that standard to any any job mm. any career you want to have be excellent at it be the best at it so that people say wow you know wow how, how do they maintain that standard that's what we do yeah try and do great mentality it's tough it's right. tough it's harsh it's, it's still, it's no, sometimes no less pressure than being in the kitchen, I can guarantee you. Right. Because you say you're going to do that. That's what you say you're going to do. Mm. Then if you don't, it's a flunk, you see. Right. Or you can play a game where you just do average if you want. Yeah. That's just not the game we play. Yeah. It depends. <laughs> right? I, like my opinion is life's tough anyway. Sure. So you might as well set your ground rules. Mm. Well, what are your ground rules? You want to do average? Could be, how I look at it is this. How many average window cleaners are there? Probably a lot. A lot. Mm. How many average chefs, mm. taxi drivers, dentists, blah. Mm. So if you want to be average, be average. All I'm saying is there's not enough abundance in being average to guarantee your survival. Do you see? Say that again. There is not enough 
abundance in being average to guarantee your survival. Right. I'll give you an example just to illustrate that. Yeah. So average window cleaner does windows for Mrs. Smith, does an average job for an average price. The next guy comes along, he is excellent for an average price. Which one wins? The excellent one. That's what I'm saying. Of course. See, that, that's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a matter of choice. I, I just I I just see being excellent as more survival than being average. Is it tougher? It definitely is. Or maybe it's tougher losing a job every two weeks. Right. Uh, it might be tougher short term, but if you can maintain it, which by the looks of it you have. It depends what game you want to play. Yeah. It depends what game you want to play. You see, mm. that's the game we play. It's the same, like, is it tougher to work at the Gavroche than to work in a canteen cooking for builders? Not that there's anything wrong with either, because there isn't. Yeah. Right? Which one is tougher? For me, it might be tougher to live without the pride that you get at the Gavroche. Mm. See? But to the other guy, maybe that works for him. I'm just saying, for me, pride is vital. For sure. That's just, that's just my game. Love it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, look, we haven't even gotten on to the art stuff. You mind if we talk about that for 10 minutes? Just it is it, it is 2 o'clock now, though. Yeah, we'll just, just do 5 to 10 minutes of that. We can always come back. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I, I would love to sit down again because it's been great, and I'm sure the listeners that I know of will, will love this. I yeah. do have a few people overseas, so... Yeah, just bring it on. They'll love it. All right, so we've talked a lot about your time as a chef and time in, in business a little bit there, but... In more recent times, you've started painting. Mm. You mentioned that at the at the top as well. I'm looking around in your office now. There's a few um, over there which look lovely. How did you get started in the painting? Well, you know, there's, frankly, cleaning windows and and having a cleaning business. Although we, you know we're doing very well and we're successful, and we have people working for us and etc. It's not necessarily based on aesthetics. Sure. Whereas when I was in the kitchen, it's mainly aesthetics, yep. right? You're not, you're not having a seven-course meal because you're hungry. <laughs> it's about the aesthetic, right? Yeah. And the food we were, we were making is not there just to fill a stomach. It's, it's being done for beauty, aesthetic reasons. Sure. So that was lacking in my life. Yeah. And it was, uh, I was unhappy about that. And I needed to put it back in. And I didn't have hours and hours of time. So I had to just decide that I could paint and then paint. Now, that's hard to comprehend. I don't know. I don't even know how to fill in the blanks. All I'm saying is I needed something aesthetic to do. I don't sing. I, don't, I can't play a musical instrument right now either. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have tens of thousands of dollars for lessons or even the time. So I had to just go, okay, what do I do? I want to paint. I'll just paint. And I, I've got to be good at painting right now. Right? Yeah. I have to be good at it. Again, pride enters in for me. Right? I can't turn out ugly, unaesthetic work. I have to be good. Yeah. So that's how I did it. I just decided to paint and then paint. I'm not saying I've never done a bad painting, but mostly <laughs> they're good. Right. I've sold four paintings this month. Wow. Right. But, you know, I usually get some time on a Sunday afternoon. So I have a project. I've got like um, I'm doing a painting for a lady at the moment, a commission. Yeah. So Sunday afternoons, that's painting time. So headphones go on and I just paint. Beautiful. Um, now, the type of painting that I do is very spontaneous and it's, you know, this is kind of like, it's an arty-farty term, but it's one that, that really describes the work and it's spontaneous realism. 
And what that means is I'm doing something that is recognisable, but I'm not thinking necessarily. I'm not doing an analytical job of painting. It's spontaneous. Yeah. So if you look at the paintings, that will really give you, how would we put that, a demonstration or some mass on what I'm doing when I'm painting in that style. It is also not fine art because I don't necessarily, I haven't had what you would call a fine life. My life has been rough. Yeah. And when I paint, I really don't paint. I use a knife. Okay. So most of my work is done with a knife and occasionally I'll use a brush for a few minutes. Wow. But I, I, I don't have time and, I, uh, and I'm not fine, right? Yeah. But I'm trying to do something aesthetic. So I end up doing that style with a knife. And it gets done in several hours. It gets done when it gets done. And that's the result of it. Some peop most people love it. Some people can't see the aesthetic in it. And I'm fine with it. Sure. Do you know? Totally fine with it. Um, so that, that's the art. You I know, mean, I, I love them. And yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be sure to share, a, if you don't mind, one of, one of them maybe on, on my Instagram or... It's all there As to the be communicated. Up. I don't yeah. see it any different to verbal communication. If I say something on Tuesday, I might have changed my mind on Wednesday. So sometimes I'll do a painting that I like on Tuesday, see it again on Wednesday, I don't like it. Right. Go and look at it next week, I like it again. It's just a communication. <laughs> For sure. And sometimes I'll say and, do, uh, and paint things that are not agreeable to people. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's nothing, means nothing. Yeah. The only thing I would like to say is when I do, I, I paint a lot of women... Okay. Sometimes I'll paint men. It's portraiture, mostly what I do. Yeah. I'm not interested in portraying anything which is degraded or particularly overtly sexual. Yeah. If, let's, let's come back to women, right? If I paint a woman, I paint something spiritual. And I think women are sacred and they should be respected. So this is often conveyed in my painting, even if the viewer cannot tell exactly what that is that is being conveyed. Mm. So they are, they are fine. They are spiritual. They are to be respected. And they are beautiful, graceful beings. So that is what I try to convey when I am painting. Um, that is really purpose for painting, to do something aesthetic. I couldn't really convey what I'm trying to communicate more clearly than I just did, you know. No. Uh, people will take different things from it but I would never paint anything that would drive a person down. I would never paint a, an evil or degraded person either, you know? Yeah. So I, I painted, changing that slightly, let's take a male example, Mike Tyson. Yeah. reason I painted Mike Tyson is because I think he's a fine human being that was taught in some respects to behave like a violent animal. Yeah. That's what I think, that's what I see. Then when he became that... The media punished him and said how evil he was, right? But he, all he did was present what he was asked to present right. to the world. Do you see? Yeah, sure. And punished for that. Punished for that, right? Then he put him on drugs and he lost his manager and he said some things that were not he shouldn't have said, did right. some things that maybe he shouldn't have done, right? But an easy guy to trap, yeah. easy guy to trap. But if you look at his documentary after that, you can see the kindness in that guy's heart have a look at it and see what you think. Sure. But that's what I perceive. I don't perceive an animal. Again, I see a spiritual being that was trying to do something great. Mm. He was a bit misled. And then, oh, he's made a wrong turn. And he was brutalised. That's what I think. 
right. the terrible injustice. So I did, I, when I painted Mike Tyson, that guy was sold in a week. Yeah. Because I'm not the only one who could see that. Do you see? That's lovely. All of what you've just said. I just want to acknowledge that about women, about Mike Tyson. Yeah, same thing, mate. Yeah. Though I, many of Thank them you. have a story, but I don't actually verbalise the story to other people because I think the viewer, I want the viewer to view it as the viewer, not from what I... Do you see? Yeah. There's no point in me telling the guy what to see. That just ruins the whole aspect. Yeah. Ruins the whole purpose. I do the painting from my view. The viewer sees what he sees. That's it. Fantastic. Now you've got the name Artful Dodger changed as well. It. I changed oh, it. Oh, you changed it. What's it now? I changed it to Craig Middleton Art. Um, okay. I can't remember exactly why, except I took some advice from a friend of mine. He's a Canadian composer yep. called Derek Hasland, quite a famous guy in Canada. Yep. Um, and he has been successful not only as an artist himself, um, but in helping other artists. And yep. He recommended that for me to be recognised as an artist, I should use my own name. Okay. So I went from Artful Dodger to Craig Middleton. Right. Just just on that basis. It doesn't really matter. It's a name. Sure, sure. Um, I was actually going to ask, is Artful Dodger's Charles Dickens character? Well, it, is that where it's yeah, from? If you originally? want to talk just briefly about Charles Dickens, that's why I chose that, right? In right. the first place, Artful Dodger, to draw people's attention to what an artist should be. Okay. Charles Dickens is... Well, what should an artist be? Charles Dickens. I'll give you a brief example because we're probably running out of time. Sure. So... Here's how the story goes. Charles Dickens, very successful writer, prolific writer, productive, intelligent, entertaining. Anyway, one day he's walking through a churchyard. He starts seeing graves, grave, another grave, another grave, another grave, all kids. Why, what's this about? In the area where he's found these graves is a workhouse. So he's gone, children dying, workhouse. Is there some correlation between a and b so he goes to the workhouse knocks on the door and they won't let him in so now he becomes very alert right very alert eventually he got in and he discovered that they were using children as slave labor and working them to death this is in the uk right workhouses starving kids and working them to death disgusting so then he wrote oliver twist Right. Not only that, so he's done a full investigation, confronted the whole thing on his own, then he's wrote, written this fantastic, entertaining story. So not content with that, he then took that and made it into a play, toured the whole country with it, and changed all of the, the whole view of child labour in the whole country through art. Wow. Think of that. Yeah. that that's, what, that's why I chose Artful Dodger, and that's why I say... You want, to be, you want to be a good example as an artist? Be Charles Dickens. I mean, there's a whole other thing of what he did. To, they were, just briefly, they were using <laughs> women as prostitutes, right, in London because they were poor and they could get teenage girls because they had no work and just use them for sex. So turning all of these young girls into prostitutes and ruining them, right? Yeah. So he set up a whole foundation for these girls where what he would do is give them a clean place to live, get them off the street, give them food. And then supply free passage to Australia so they could escape this suppression. Wow. This is, this is just a, you know, that's what an artist should do. Absolutely. No, nobody had ever done this before. Right. So that's why I chose Artful Dodger, to draw people's attention to that type of behaviour. Yeah. That's it. That's brilliant. Thank you for that little rundown. I love it. Yeah, it's good, mate. I love it. I feel like we could talk about it a lot longer. We do have to go, surely, but I'll just, I want to end on a couple more questions. Yep. Um, 
what is your definition of success? Oh, that's that's a totally internal, a totally internal question. That cannot be defined for anybody. That that is impossible. Right. If somebody else is defining your success, that is just nonsense. Totally nonsense. That's like somebody trying to define for you what is right and wrong. It's impossible. For you, but you're, for me, you're, you're saying yeah. you, you define your own success. I but you, yeah. yeah, but I wanted to say that first because yeah, it has course. to be an internal proposition. Mm. Shortly, I'll give you the short one, which is not very interesting, but I'll need to say this one. That <laughs> is simply this, deciding to do something and doing it. That's very easy. I like that. Right? That's yeah. L. Ron Hubbard as much as it is me, but yeah. that's what that is. So you decide to do something, you do it, that's success. Yeah. Right? So you can amplify that to a whole lifetime. You can amplify that just simply to opening a door. But that is, you know, uh, if you want to make that amplified or make it longer, um, if I decide that I want to do a great painting and do one, there's one. It can be, you know, how many people do you want to inspire this week if you want to be more, how do you want to put this, um, esoteric or more spiritual about it? How many people do you want to affect in a good way? How many people would you like to help? You know, how many people? It's certainly not how much money do I want to earn, in my opinion. Sure. Maybe for the other guy it is. Mm. I just don't see that as very workable because a lot of the people that I meet that are very wealthy and help nobody are quite miserable. Mm. So there must be something in help, in helping others, which is very key to a person's success. You know, as I say, I can't define it for you. Sure. But I've never seen anybody that's genuinely helping other people unselfishly Right and succeeding in that, which is a key point, mm. who is miserable. Well, I haven't seen many people like that. Love it. Yeah? But yeah. I have seen lots of people who are very wealthy and only helping number one, yeah. who are quite miserable. Mm. So, I mean, that, that's all. I could go on for an hour. No, sure. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will probably take a bit of, a bit of truth in that, I'm, I'd like to think. Yeah, I mean, there's more to say. Like for myself, what, what is success is doing a good painting. It's helping an individual... Um, unselfishly it's seeing like in my business on a business from a business aspect we do need to make good money Mm. because we spend a lot of money in lots of different areas because it's an expensive world so we do need to be successful in that way and i wouldn't dream of shying people away from that yeah sometimes it's vital but one of the other criterion of my business is to have happy people yeah pride is important so they would need to have pride in their work and realise that they are not just a working machine, they are a human being who are vital to the success of the group. That's another key element to it. Mm. Um, that, that pretty much, I suppose that's it for now. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this one might be a little bit longer, but I, I feel like I'd, I really want to know your answer. Yeah. So I want to keep stealing time, but we're nearly there. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? If anything, oh, I know mate, you've. I, I can tell you that straight away. Sure. <laughs> don't drink so much. You know, I mean, this may or may not be dull, but I'm, I'm just telling <laughs> myself now. You do not. Need, you don't need to drink so much. Yeah. You do not need to follow. You can make up your own mind. Mm. Okay. Following people, if you choose the wrong people, that's just deadly. And I've, like I told you, I've got friends that are dead, and why they're dead is because they followed the wrong people. Last week, no, two weeks ago, a friend of mine who is my age finally drunk herself to death. Why oh. does she do it? Because she's following her peers. Yeah, well. right. 20 years earlier, her mother had begged her not to drink anymore. Why is that? Because her brother had died at 25 years old. 
So skip following the wrong people, right? Set your own goals. You don't need to drink so much. Taking harmful drugs is deadly, and you you have probably have no idea how much damage that you are doing to yourself. So people who try to tell you how mild it is to do the occasional ecstasy, etc., are either very misled or evil or some such thing. So you can just skip that, right? And here's, finally, here's the thing. I worked out the other day the difference between a child and an adult. One of the key differences. A child sometimes takes pleasure in doing things that are not necessarily responsible. Right? I'm just being very specific in my wording here. Sure. An adult, as far as I can tell, is supposed to start taking pleasure from being responsible. So if you can coach yourself into taking pleasure from doing things that are responsible, I think that you will be successful. That's what I would like to have conveyed to myself at 20. Because those times when I took pleasure, in inverted commas, from being very irresponsible were very damaging. Mm. Very damaging. They seemed great at the time. And my mates thought I was great at the time. But none of those things that I did, they're, they're all regrettable. They were all damaging. Nothing right. good came from it. Fabulous Nothing. advice. Nothing. Yeah, I love it. it, mate. Thank you very much. Now, one last thing, just to open it. Is there anything you'd like to end on that we might not have covered today? Oh, I've probably got another two or three hours for you. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Sure. If it's not already apparent, mm. I have lived my life, right, really over the ramparts. And I think shying away from living because you are afraid to do something damaging is a mistake. Live your life. You don't have to be overtly trying to harm people, try to help people, but do not be afraid to live and do not be afraid to make a mistake. Let's say, look at it, look at it. If you live, right, in fear of making a mistake, what is the end phenomena of that? You survived. Did you live or did you just have a slow death? Mm. Mm? You answer that for yourself. I can tell you now, I haven't had a slow death. (laughs) And I, I refuse to. I will always live this way. I work six to seven days a week, right? Not, not because I want to, right? Yeah. I, I, I see work. I change work. I don't use that. I use create. Yeah. So if you can change the idea of work as being some labor that you have to do and transfer the word create into that, look at it from that viewpoint, that's, that's how I'd like to leave you. I, I, you know, you have to make up your own mind on these things. That, that's just that's what works for me, and I think it might work for you. Craig Middleton, thank you very much. Love the chat. Love all the advice. (laughs) Thanks for the time, mate. Cheers, buddy. Champion.